This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Jess Hill, welcome to Better Reading. Thanks so much, Cheryl. Well, congratulations on winning the Stella for your book, See What You Made Me Do. Yeah, what a freaky thing. <laughs> what, a, what a really freaky thing. Um, because it's it's a hard subject, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Now, you know, it's interesting because the book... Um, the book had really totally exceeded my expectations in, t- in terms of how it was received already by the time that it was shortlisted for the Stella. And I I really thought that, okay, so this book is has obviously been received well. People think it's important, but it's going to be one of those worthy books that sort of always makes a shortlist but doesn't actually get the prize because I think a lot of judges probably find it quite difficult. You know, it just didn't feel like that that feel good winner. <laughs> and, um, and so it was really interesting to, to see the Stella award it. Um, and I thought probably quite apt too, because that's the whole project of the Stella is to get not only women's writing, but women's voices and women's stories heard more broadly. And that's exactly what this book is trying to do, you know, mm. so. It was a bestseller before winning this Stella though. I mean, it has sold very, very well. How long has it been out? Uh, so it's been out since last June. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and it had its second reprint in December. So I think it went from we had 10,000 in the first run, another 3,000. And then mm. um, last week they printed another 6,000 and mm. it looks like they're almost out of those. Mm. Um, it Basically it's been selling at about 1,000 a day um, for mm. the last few days. So, yeah, it's well, just phenomenal. Well, do you know I've um, had trouble getting a copy, obviously, because it has sold out. Yeah, right. And, of course, the lovely people at Blank Ink said they'd post me one and, and I'm just, you know, and I was like, I need to read it. I need to read it. I'm speaking <laughs> just next week. And I got a little express thing in my po- in my post. And I thought, okay, I'll run up the post office. I'll run up to the post office. I think this was Monday. I'll run up to the post office and I'll get it because, you know, I'm speaking with her on Thursday. Anyway, I ran up to the post office and, of course, it wasn't it. And I was walking, back. I was walking back with eight books, you know, and, of course, they'd send me the PDF, but it's not the same, right? Yeah. I really wanted the book. So, anyway, I'm walking back and I past my neighbor's house and she's up in the front front balcony and of course with coronavirus we're all you know keeping our distance and she said where have you been I said oh look I'm waiting for this book and I went to the post office and instead I've got eight books that you know I don't need for a couple of weeks and she said what is it and I said oh you know it's this book called see what you made me do by um Jess Hill and there she was she had it right there oh no way oh how funny (laughs) here it is do you want to read it do you want to borrow it it? I know so I've got her copy right here excellent oh that's very neighborly (laughs) isn't it fantastic it's a nice story now I'll introduce you Jess is an investigative journalist who has been writing about domestic violence since 2014 prior to this she was producer for ABC radio a Middle East correspondent for the Global Mail and an investigative journalist 
for background briefing. She was listed in the foreign policy's top 100 women to follow on Twitter, and her reporting on domestic violence has won two Walkley Awards, an Amnesty International Award, and three Our Watch Awards. So, I mean, that's a stellar career, if you like, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's been pretty good so far. Yeah. It has, it has. But it's not, it's, it, it's good um, in many ways, but gosh, I'm, uh, I guess the subject for you, I mean, it must bring you down sometimes, you know. Oh, the, my God. Like the inability just... to affect change sometimes is really, I find, very, very depressing. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I remember sitting down with, I think it was Anthony Lowenstein, who's, you know, writes a lot about Israel-Palestine and about things like disaster capitalism, all cheery subjects. Uh, mm. And we were chatting about, like, well, why, why do we do this? What, what are we actually trying to do? And, you know, he was talking about, well, you know, I, I do this to try to change policies, you know, to change the way that governments act. And, and I, for me, I felt like if I, gosh, if I, if I did my journalism, um, on the basis that it would change the way that politicians decide things, I'd be perpetually depressed. Mm. And, um, and, for me, it's always been, whether it's been reporting on the Middle East, whether it's been reporting on climate change or resources or domestic abuse, it's always been about changing people at the individual level. And even just so that next time they encounter that subject, they come with more knowledge or more empathy, more compassion, um, more understanding. That's what I feel like my job is. And, and when I was writing the book, every time I would sort of sort of go to this whole idea of, oh, I want to see these changes made or I think these changes are really vital, I just feel this totally emptied out feeling, which is just that if you hang, if you hang your work on that, you will be let down um, unless some miracle occurs. But every time I thought to myself, I just want someone to read this and better understand either their own background and, and history um, or that of a friend, um, or that of someone that they work with or for, or just understand their own relationships better, and the way that our, you know, society has construct, constructed our own perceptions and stereotypes. That's a win. That that is absolutely why I want to do this. Mm-hmm. And that, on that measure, the book has done exceedingly well um, yeah, because absolutely. I just get so many people replying and saying that they're they're understandings of so many things have been turned upside down um, and that they're even that their life has really been changed by reading the book so that's for me that's why I do it do you know um so of course I picked it up on on Monday and I started reading it and I started to think about my own experiences um, and what I've seen and heard around me and I remembered um very much an incident when I was 16 years old which was my first kind of encounter or my first understanding of how violent um, domestic abuse can be Mm. and it was my mother's friend and her name was Suzanne Dowd and her husband for Ed Dowd killed her and her children in Campsie. Wow. You might remember that he was um, he had two guns and he walked walked into a house in Campsie and killed her and his five children. Um, And do you know, my mother took me to that funeral. And when I was thinking about it and reading your book, I remembered that it was three children and Susan is what we called her, but her name is Susan and Susan. And when I looked it up, it was actually, it was her and four children. So there would have been Mm. five coffins at this Mm. funeral. And that, I guess, is one end of the spectrum, isn't it, that we're looking at that continues Mm. to happen all the Mm. time. And 
we're all touched by it in some way. Now, I remember her so clearly. Day, you know, she'd often come to my mother's and she'd often be crying and she'd often be, you know, they're trying to come up with solutions of how to get her out of that situation. And they finally did and got her a housing commission home. But of course, he tracked her down and he tracked yeah. them down. But, you know, I, I, have we come far since then? I mean, this was what, back in 1981? I mean, have yes. things changed? Oh, radically. Talk to me which, about that. Yeah, which, you know, it's not to say that we're still not seeing high rates of domestic homicide, where there are certainly things that should have gotten better and haven't, you know. I think with the, um, as pornography has become more violent and more degrading, um, that's that's certainly had an impact on the type of assaults and, and just the type of behaviour that frontline workers are seeing. I was talking to a shelter just, or a few people who work at a shelter this morning and they were just talking about even in the last two or three years, the sort of in, um, increase in the type of severity of violence and I hear that all the time. So there are some things that have uh, even possibly regressed um, But what has changed is, A, the societal understanding of domestic abuse. There is such a better understanding both from government, which is incredibly important, but also from a lot of people in the community that physical violence isn't the be-all and end-all of domestic abuse, that it is one part of it. It's also pretty well understood that this is not something that is just, you know, um, the bane of poor neighbourhoods or, you know, um, the behaviour of a drunkard or a drug addict. So the just the general understanding is so much better. Now, in 1981, you would have had, a, you know, a few refuges open. Um, they only started opening in about 1975 with Elsie's in Glebe. You know, so that refuge sector would have been still in its infancy. You know, now we have a nationwide sector that is you know, not as well resourced as it should be, but has incredible smarts and um, and is very well versed on how to respond to these situations. We also have, you know, since in in those early in the early eighties, marital rape was not a term. <laughs> there was no such thing. You know, you gave consent to your husband on your wedding day, and oh since then, you know, it's rape in marriage has been criminalised. Um, do people still get raped in marriage? And does it go unprosecuted? Of course. But the cultural change that came along with that was to re- recognise that you don't just give consent when you say "I do." That that consent is a is an ongoing negotiation between partners. There's so many other things that have improved in terms of the way that we respond legally. We have you know much better police response, and absolutely, as I talk about in the book, it is by no means perfect. It is a long way from perfect, but there at least is a there are policies even for people, even for reluctant police officers who do still think of it as just a domestic there are policies that make it very difficult for them to just dismiss incidents mm. so i mean it just goes on and on i mean i think when people say oh nothing's changed i just think like well look at look at where we were back then and look at what we see now we see criminalization of strangulation we see so many different changes um that have just revolutionized um the way that women experience the aftermath of domestic abuse let's talk about the recent incident in queensland and i'll stop using extreme examples but uh, you know mm. for that it was so extreme again yeah. it was a bit like you know the case that i mentioned earlier however 
there was the horror of that. But there was, I think, the horror for me in the reporting, in the way that the mm-hmm. media took this on. Mm-hmm. And even media that you didn't expect would take it on in that way mm-hmm. where, you know, they all, uh, you, I mean, let's talk about it. I mean, you know, there, there was an assumption that she was difficult and that something mm. must have been going on for to drive him to that extent. Mm. And that what that did come from a number of outlets. I think there was even like a sporting outlet that that reported on it because he'd formerly been um, a footballer. Yeah. yeah. So essentially, so we're talking about the murder of Hannah Clark and her children, her three children mm. in Brisbane, um, by Rowan Baxter, who was her estranged husband. It was a classic case of coercive control and in the sense that at least for a great portion of the relationship possibly the entire relationship I'm not sure there was no physical violence but there was um domination control degradation humiliation um he would roughhouse with the kids you know we saw videos of him roughhousing with his young children to the point where they were crying you know there was reports that he would demand sex every night and if she refused he would make life really difficult for the children like taunt them sort of make them upset the next day and that's what that's what we talk about with coercive control that's why we call it coercive and not just control is because a lot of it is creating a new reality for the victim so it's not that he's he's not beating her when he when she refuses sex He's just get, sending her the very strong message that by refusing sex, she is making life difficult for her children. That's the message she starts to get. So there all these really telltale signs of what is the most dangerous form of abuse, which is this coercive control, which often follows a very similar script from relationship to relationship. And one of the things she said to a close friend was apparently that she never thought it was domestic violence because he never hit her. And that she didn't really, she didn't recognise what was happening to her until she'd already, you know, written to him. She was already pretty trapped. But still she left and and still he came and found her and, and you know, set her and her children on fire in the car as they were about to go to school. There's sort of, I think what happened to the nation when they found out about this was the sort of horror that was on par with what happened when Luke Batty was murdered in 2014, mm-hmm. um, where it just it took people to this new level of of being horrified, of being angry, and of being fed up. You know, and I was on the Writers Festival circuit um, when this happened. I went to Perth about a couple of days afterwards, so you know, quite a long way from Brisbane. And it was all everyone was talking about. And, you know, the, I saw the the receptivity in the crowd was so, so different. Now, the some of the media response was predictably terrible, you know, talking about a man who loved his children. Oh, okay. Like according to who? And that's no special, that's no special quality, you know. Mm. Um, and loving your children does not preclude you from treating them like shit, you know, as we've seen. Everyone has very different ways of, quote unquote loving but so we saw that but you know what I think what we're seeing now and this is you know got a lot to do with social media is that when those media reports come out there is a immediate response and an immediate reaction that calls it out as unacceptable and to me I was actually even though I was disappointed with some of those initial reactions the story and the narrative changed very quickly you know and in some of the really 
leading or like more tabloid newspapers like the Courier Mail, it was absolutely unequivocal that Rowan Baxter was the one and only person to blame for this. Mm. Um, and, you know, uh, I, there's still a bit of sort of monster um, making and othering that, that goes on in some of that reporting in terms of who Rowan Baxter was, which I think takes us away from understanding what drives men to do this. But I actually overall was not that unhappy with the way it was reported. I think that we have come such a, such a long way in the last few years and there are so many journalists who report on this particularly for newspapers but also just who are general news reporters who have you know, done the training with our watch who does the, you know, reporting training on domestic violence, who have read my book or who have just been across what's been happening culturally um, so that they are actually a lot more sensitive in the way they report. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Posting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash post. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I just want to know how we get to a state, well, how Rowan Baxter, for instance, gets to where he is. Mm. Has he, I mean, how does a person like that end up killing his family? Mm. Where does that come from? Look, it's hard to say in terms of Rowan Baxter individually, but what I look at in the book is that there are patterns that we see in um, in men who use violence and control, which is not to say that we can slot men into one pattern or the other, but that basically we see these, these, these basic distinctions. So one, just to briefly give you a sense, because that I found when I started to write the book that I was like, I need some I need some way to sort of differentiate the type of domestic abuse we're seeing because we use this one term, but it's like a catch-all phrase for all abuse. And we know that that there's abuse that's quite different. There's abuse that is perpetrated by people who are virtually psychotic. Mm -hmm. Um, There's abuse that's, you know, much more sort of one-off and and reactive. So, like, they're, they're all different, right, and they're coming from different places, and yet we just sort of lump them all under the one banner. So what the research has shown sort of time and again is that certain patterns emerge, and that is that there is people who, men predominantly, who use what we call coercive control, which is a pattern of behaviour where control and humiliation is basically at the core. Um, it's where it's a, it's a type of domestic abuse that really is what the domestic violence movement is talking about when they talk about domestic violence, which is you know isolation, degradation, threats, humiliation. You know, basically monopolizing the person's perception into such a in such a way that makes it very difficult for them to see outside of what the the logic the perpetrator has established so for example that it is all their fault 
that they are to blame or that their job must be to fix this man, you know, that sort of thing. Basically setting up a situation where they are almost creating an alternative reality inside the relationship. And that's why they often want friends and family to sort of stay away. And when I say Mm. they, perpetrators, often sort of keep um, friends and family at arm's length because they need that sort of um, artificial logic to remain in place and the sorts of people that might start to put holes in it are friends and family or supportive connections. So this type of coercive control, research has shown that there's like two patterns of perpetrator. One is the the perpetrator that kind of does it strategically They do the same thing pretty much relationship to relationship. They're pretty conscious of what they're doing. They, and that's why I say strategically, they're cold. They're not necessarily even that attached to the partner that they're with, but they're very attached to having someone to control. Mm -hmm. So typically that, that pattern, when you see that sort of um, alive in a, in a perpetrator, that person's the most dangerous at the moment that you're leaving and that you may expose them, but they don't generally tend to stalk and follow after the relationship has ended because the appeal has kind of worn off. They'll just go and find somebody else to establish the same thing with. The second pattern that really emerges with coercive controllers is the more insecure, paranoid type of man who is constantly tr- accusing their partner of cheating so infidelity is, is an obsession. Um, they are basically terrified that their partner will leave them and sort of expose them to be the defective people that they believe themselves deep down to be. So they can be quite narcissistic, but they can also be, you know, come across as quite damaged people. And that can actually be some of what, what really establishes that bond and what gets their partners sort of really connected in a way that's like, I'm going to try and fix this man I will uniquely be able to present a type of love um, and a type of connection that will make him, that will help him overcome his challenges and make him a better man. So they're sort of the two types. And, and the, the second type who is much more paranoid and sort of fearful, they will use pretty much exactly the same behaviours and techniques as the cold and controlling type but they do it more unconsciously that's what's so freaky is you see the same techniques repeated time and again sometimes strategically sometimes unconsciously now for that second sort of cohort which is much more common i should say um mm-hmm. research has shown that that's that's really kind of the majority of coercive controllers are not the sort of cold sociopathic types they are much more likely to be paranoid and and more codependent what i really looked at in the book is the motivating force of shame and humiliated fury. And that for a lot of these men, they, I mean, they quite commonly come from pretty horrific childhoods, not always. That might be that they feel a deep-seated shame about not being able to fulfil the contract of being a man, of not being strong enough, of not being all those sorts of things, independent enough, you know, of all those things that is expected of men in the dominant paradigm. Mm-hmm. Um a lot of guys really struggle under the expectations of masculinity to be vulnerable and connected in relationship. So even just the process of going from the idealised sort of beginning where everything is possible and it's all very romantic to the, you know, where you have to compromise and where you have to actually live together, Mm. um, that can be incredibly difficult because in that 
process, you have to reveal more and more of yourself. You have to be more vulnerable to your partner and you start to feel like you can start to feel those insecure feelings because suddenly your happiness is predicated on somebody else, you know, and, and you rely on that person. And that for a lot of men is incredibly uncomfortable and they can feel like they are almost being attacked, which is, this is the really bizarre thing is that there's these men who come from these either places of deep-seated shame from childhood or also from just failing sort of the man contract, they can feel like normal behaviour that is absolutely, you know, taken for granted in other relationships can feel like an attack to them. Mm-hmm. And they may even hear attacks when none were intended and they get can get so paranoid about being betrayed or about being abandoned or being exposed as, you know, not not enough of a man that they start to detect these clues of betrayal in the most unlikely places like, oh, um, she liked this guy's Facebook post, so she must be fucking him, you know, that, that sort of ridiculous types of, you know, breadcrumb tracing that a lot of these guys do. And it leads them to behave in ways that, you know, some men who, who kill their partners or ex-partners will later say it was like I was under some kind of psychotic spell, you know, that I was so jealous and so, like, just furious that she would treat me like that. And it wasn't until after I killed her I realized how insane I had become. It so that's reminds, that's the sort of stuff that goes on. Yeah, that 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 poor woman that was thrown over the balcony. I mean, yes. that that was a similar scenario, wasn't it? I mean, he was tracking every movement, every everything she did. He was scrutinizing, you know. Yes. Uh, recording her. He was everything. He was an extreme example um or not even an extreme example, but that more of an example of that cold and controlling type who um I mean the the level of um, surveillance that he established, yes, the cameras absolutely. inside and outside the house, mm. you know. the He was he, tracking her every movement. Yeah, and, you know, also getting her employed but quarantining her wages, so making yeah. sure she had no personal freedom. Um, that's, and then to see, you know, um, this Simon Gattani, um, who was that's the perpetrator, yeah. to see him move on then to another woman who looked very, very similar to Rachel Harnham, uh, and and seemingly sort of repeat the same behaviours there. That's what we see. So in those kinds of, those guys will go from one relationship to the next and they'll just repeat the exact same behaviour. See, now this is where I get myself into trouble because I sometimes look at those women and think, what are you doing? You mm. must know. Now, the new girlfriend did know this was a high-profile case. Mm. And she still walked into that relationship. Well, she believed he was innocent. And this is the thing is these guys are incredibly charming and they pick up, you know, they, they particularly go for this whole idea of it's you and me against the world, babe. Yeah. You know, it's very intoxicating when you are treated like a total goddess and when it's basically when there's, you know, women generally, not, or not all women, but a lot of women, and I put myself in this category, especially in the past, like we seem to like men who are like a project, you know, yeah. and then and then over time we might actually learn that it's not good to have a partner who's also a project, you know, they yeah. can fix themselves. But it is really, it's a seductive, um, it's a seductive idea that, you know, that we're going to be the ones that are going to fulfill his dreams or we're going to make him a better man or we're going to, you know, because a lot of the value that women um, get for being, you know, for being women is how, 
good we are at relationships. If men get sort of kudos for being in control and logical and rational, well, women get kudos for being, you know, really good partners and, you know, basically taking care of the relationship. And so it's a really seductive premise. And when you get absolutely charmed out of your chair by a, by a guy mm. and, you know, obviously there's a lot of women who would see a case like this and run a million miles, um, but for whatever reason, his new partner obviously believed him and it's that classic old thing you know obviously this is a more extreme version but so many guys will come, who have histories of abuse will come into a new relationship and be like oh thank god you're not like my ex she was such mm. a bitch and there's a there can be a real appeal to that like yeah i'm i'm better than those other women you know like mm. it's so it's so, like it's not I think that's alarm bells for me. If somebody starts oh. to bag their partner, then there's something wrong with it. Me too. But you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of people who feel much more insecure when they those men are friends with their partners. So you know, it, it, there's a lot. There's a really complex dynamic at play there. And it's funny in the book I talk about. There's one um, victim survivor who um, said that she was in court. Um, when her her perpetrator was being charged by another, a later girlfriend, and she heard the charge being read out and what had happened and that the woman had stayed with him, she'd gotten pregnant to him, she, you know, even after he threatened to kill her, et cetera, et cetera, and she's sitting there going, oh, God, how could she be so stupid? And then she went back to him and then she went, oh, my oh. God, that's my story. Yeah, that's what I did. <laughs> that is exactly right. what happened to me. I did all those things, you know. Yeah, wow. So we're so programmed to like put all the focus on the woman's behaviour so looking at how that might happen. So as a community and as a society, I mean, how do we change those behaviours? I mean, how is it that we change the behaviours of men but also the behaviours of women? I mean, how sure. do we do that? Well, part of it I think is starting to understand the social structure that we live within, which is patriarchy, yeah. and understand how particular behaviours, particular expectations and assumptions are shaped by our culture and that are not good for us. So that's why I dedicated a whole chapter to patriarchy in the book. And that's largely because the Me Too movement made patriarchy a palatable subject again after it had been in the wilderness for a long time. So that's that's partly, I think, consciousness of how of how we've been led to expect or accept certain things in our relationships is fundamental and very important. And then, you know, for me, I think I looked at the reason why I really wanted to turn the whole premise on its head from looking at victims and why do they stay to looking at perpetrators and why do they do it was to really try to grapple with what is going on for these guys and to see them as fundamentally human and, you know, think about them coming out, babies, growing up as little boys. There's a very rare little boy who grows up wanting to assault and to control their partners. You know, these something happens to them along the way. And a lot of these men, even though they may put on a veneer of being totally in control, a lot of them are deeply miserable, paranoid, um, insecure people. And so my thing is like, we should be taking that seriously. That is so prevalent in our society that those people then go on to be incredibly destructive. 
in their intimate relationships and in their families. And broadly, you know, if you look across the corporate world, I mean, that behavior, that controlling, dominating, arrogant, egotistical behavior is rewarded in the corporate world as just, you know, effective management. So we have to look at the how are we encouraging these behaviors in the professional world and then making them illegal in the private space. So I, I partly in terms of behavior change, I really want to see much more done in opening up spaces for men to deal with their issues, whether it be trauma, whether it be shame that just comes from failing, as I said before, the man contract, you know, but opening up more spaces for men to talk about that, to have to have access to to help and to not just put all of their eggs in the partner basket where the partner has to be friend, confidant, lover, mother, everything, you know. But more to the point is that in the immediate term, what I look at in the book is that we don't actually have to wait for men to change, which, you know, is up in the air as to whether a lot of these men can change. We don't have to wait for generational change or gender equality. There are strategies that use deterrence that basically are able to you know, that, that, that get the community working with the justice system, with the domestic violence sector in ways that reduce domestic violence like within two or three years. So what I really think is that we need to be, we need to believe that we're able to actually reduce domestic abuse and then we need to commit to doing that and we need to commit to targets as we do with reducing smoking or reducing drink driving, not just sort of look to we want to make relationships respectful but how many domestic homicides do are we okay with you know five years from now do we want to cut it by 50 percent are we aiming to cut it by 70 percent what are we aiming for what's possible um and then set about doing that using the proven strategies that have been you know shown worldwide to work it's interesting um how it's coming to the forefront again with covid and with lockup and and isolation i mean do you know it was such I just wasn't expecting that. When I started to read the first articles of domestic abuse growing because mm. people are locked up, I was horrified. Mm. I was like, oh, I mean, it is a side effect, if you like, that startled me. And yeah. then I thought, here we go again. The number's going to escalate. Yeah, well, you know, not only are people stuck in their houses, and one, one example that's just kept on coming to mind for me is... Um, in terms of that pressure cooker environment is there was a man I met in, in Melbourne, he's in the book, and he was on an intervention order. Uh, he was trying to patch things up with his partner and she was actually allowing him to continue to see the children. They were hoping to sort of find some way of making peace together um, and coming back into a relationship. He'd essentially thrown her out of bed one night and been arrested and he found out at the Men's Behaviour Change Program that he'd actually been abusing her for years um, with his degrading and humiliating comments in ways that he didn't even know was abuse or he says he, he was not aware of that. And so he, you know, after going through the Behaviour Change Program and saying he was really committed to trying to change, when he would feel that, that surge in him, either whatever he identified as anger or as a need to control her or as a need to degrade her, he'd go out and he'd go to the gym you know, or he'd go and play sport. Well, that's not open to people like him anymore. Mm. So what happens when these guys who are really, who, even the guys who are trying, 
who are trying to overcome really habituated behavior don't have an outlet anymore you know and what happens to the women and children who used to have you know a few hours to themselves maybe while their parent their partner was at work or the kids at school had had contact with maybe a supportive teacher or other friends they don't have that anymore so even if we don't see a rise in incidents per se because things aren't being reported you just it doesn't take a genius to sit down and think what would that household be like um but even more on top of just the lockdown situation, whenever you have a situation of great economic insecurity, you see abuse rise because essentially with great economic insecurity comes for, for a lot of men who are, who are maybe inclined to be abusive and controlling, it, you know, it brings a type of humiliation. And I talk about humiliated fury in the book where that feeling of being deeply humiliated is so unbearable that you have to replace it with a feeling of power. And how do abusive men do that? They take power over their partners or their children and it makes them feel like, oh, I'm back in control of something again. So I think that like we saw with the um, the Great Depression, like we've seen with recessions throughout the 20th century, it's a no-brainer that, that domestic abuse is going to rise. It's just going to depend on, I mean, it, there are a number of variables that are going to come into play as to whether we see rises in domestic homicide or the, the pointiest end of it. Certainly in the UK, in since lockdown, domestic homicide has doubled. Mm, I was reading um, that actually. I was reading that. And that's after domestic homicide rose by a third in 2019 compared to 2018. So, you know, but in, in the UK, you've also had a very different um, arc where you've had austerity, COVID hit a lot harder. You know, in Australia, we've had the um, wage subsidies, which is going to really help sort of offset some of that economic uncertainty and some of the exacerbating factors that could make domestic abuse worse. There's all sorts of things that come into play and it's very difficult to know exactly how this is all going to play out. And we probably won't know really what's been happening until research starts, you know, after this is all over. But what we do know is that there's a 40% increase in calls to frontline services. And yet there's also been a, a pretty substantial reduction in calls to helplines. So there's all sorts of different things. There's been a 70% drop in calls to child protection services, you know, and that's because children aren't in touch with, you know, teachers or, or other people at the moment. So there's no mandatory reporters to doing these reports. So there's, or, or fewer, so there's, there's all of these different things that are bubbling up and down. There's not one thing that is, you know, more important than the other and it's very difficult to know exactly what's happening inside the households across Australia. Mm. Okay, we've got to end it there, Jess. Um, the book is called See What You Made Me Do. It's really powerful. And also, too, as difficult as the subject is, I, I think it's compelling reading. You've got a really lovely writing style about you. Um, Thanks. In terms of that it's storytelling as well. And that's not only my view. A lot of the, our readers, the better reading readers, are already reading it or recommending it to each other and saying the same thing. So right. um, it deservedly won the stellar. Congratulations, Jess Hill. Thank you so much, Cheryl. Thanks for chatting with me. Thanks. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. 
or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.